Luke. Luke chapter 1, one of the things I really enjoyed the idea of preaching on was Mary's reception of the good news that came to her that the Messiah was coming into the world. And not only was the Messiah coming into the world, but she would be the mother of the one through whom God the Father would remake all humanity. And so really you have two women that stand as the headwaters of the whole human race. You have the woman, Isha, who is given to man, Adam, or Ish, (laughs) Adam. And after Adam and his wife had sinned, and God gave to them the promise in Genesis chapter 3 that the Messiah would be born of a woman. He would be the seed of a woman. After God had made the promise, had clothed them, and they went forth from the garden, we read that Adam and his wife knew one another, and she became pregnant. And when that happened, Adam named his wife Eve, which means mother of all living. Now, there are very many important women in Scripture, but none so much like Mary, the one who is the literal, physical seed of the Messiah. She gives birth to him. That is, she carries the seed of the Holy Spirit. And with the, the, the mix or the, the, the perfect wedding of divine and human nature in the person and work of Jesus Christ, Mary carried forth the Messiah into the world, even as she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That personhood of Mary uh, was given uh, to the Messiah. And so when Mary hears this news, she erupts in a song. That's what I want to look at tonight. It's often referred to as the Magnificat. It is that song of rejoicing in light of God's good mercy and grace. A turn to Luke. It's not the only song uh, of sorts that we find in Luke chapter 1, but it is the one that we'll focus on. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46, and I'll read to verse 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, even now, our hope is that we may never forget the glorious promise of salvation not only made at the beginning of all time in Genesis 3, but repeated throughout your word and then made glorious known to us in the Gospels in the conception and subsequent birth of the Messiah 
who was made like us in every way yet without sin, so that he might suffer under the law for us, that his righteousness might be our righteousness, that we might give to him, and as we did, our sin, and he bore it on the tree. And there he left it, fully paid for, so that we might be redeemed. Lord, even now, in a moment as we go from this place, help us to remember the glory and the majesty of our Messiah, born, suffered, dead, raised, ascended, the one who will gather us to himself one day, even as we shall be made like him, fully holy. Lord, speak to our hearts even now tonight, we ask in your name. Amen. And we know the story well. Mary has visited Elizabeth. She is already with child. She greets Elizabeth. And there, even in that moment, John, who was in the womb of Elizabeth, leapt for joy. It is an indication that John, prior to his being born, got a head start on the worship that he would do in the presence of his own Redeemer. Elizabeth speaks of the blessing of Mary. And in light of this encounter and the encounter with the angel and the news that she had heard, Joseph himself would receive news. Mary sings a psalm of praise to the Lord. That is what I want to focus on this evening. In particular, the theme of the mercy of God displayed to Mary, to all, and to Israel. We see the mercy of God bestowed upon Mary in verses 46 through 49. This mercy, the glory and salvation of God, manifests so that she would be the chosen one to bear the Son of God, the Savior of the world. We see mercy for all in verses 50 through 53. And then in verses 54 through 55, we see in particular mercy for Israel as Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, the messianic fulfillment of all previous promises made in the past. He has, verse 54, helped his servant Israel. Israel being the covenant people of God named not just for Abraham and Isaac Jacob, who would one day in his own life become Israel. Let's look at these three points then. Mercy for Mary, mercy for all, mercy for Israel. In this first section, in which Mary rightly focuses upon herself, she speaks of the joy that is hers as an overflow of what she recognizes as God's Sovereign grace in her own life. It begins, my soul, the deepest parts of me, that very thing that is immaterial, that cannot be seen, that part that is redeemed, that lives forever, this part of me magnifies the Lord. This is a, an issuing of praise, a, a song of praise that issues forth from the deepest parts of Mary. It's a full-throated song. It's a song of joy. Her spirit is filled with joy in whom? Verse 47, in God my Savior. It is a 
personal call to praise. Perhaps you've had those moments in your own life when you have in a unique and glorious way encountered the Lord in Scripture and it moves you. Maybe it moves you to tears. Maybe it moves you to sing. Maybe you've had those encounters in the car where you're driving down the road and you're listening either to Scripture, as my parents would say, an audiobook. I just call them audibles. <laughs> or a book on tape. I don't have a tape deck in my car, and I haven't had one in, in many years. Or maybe you're listening to a song or a psalm that magnifies and extols some virtue of God, and you cannot help but be moved by it. Why? It is always in relationship to some mighty, glorious, gracious act of God. And here Mary, Mary is the woman of all women, 4,000 years of history of God with his people. How many women, how many good, faithful Israelite women may have thought to themselves, maybe, maybe to me or maybe in this generation, maybe I would be the one who would bear a son who would be the Messiah. And we see this in some way in Hannah's own lament and prayer and then song of joy when God gives to Hannah a miracle son. Now Samuel was not the Messiah. He was a judge, kind of a priest and almost a, a sort of king in Israel. Uh, but Samuel was not the Messiah. He was a faithful man of God. But he was not the Messiah. But this would be. God had said it himself. He sent messengers. And Mary believed it. Verse 48. For he, that is the Lord, God my Savior, has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. In essence, this is why me? Why me? Why me? He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Her life, she recognizes, will be forever changed. For in the same way she hoped for the very thing that has now been revealed to her, and she would have an essential part in it, not just carrying the Messiah into the world, but to raise that Messiah as a child. And we see her even at the foot of the cross. Many of the disciples had deserted Jesus at that point, but not Mary. And John was there. Can you imagine being Mary in that moment? Even if you knew the promise of Genesis 3.15 was some clarity, you know that the coming of the Messiah would result in some measure of conflict between forces of good and forces of evil. That we see clearly in the Old Testament. A threat. Moses was one like this. A threat of life. But Moses was delivered through water in a basket. Not unlike Noah and his family, Christ himself, even at his birth, would be delivered out of the hands of Herod and they would flee to Egypt and he would later return to the land of Israel. For Mary, she understands the glorious sovereign grace and mercy of God. She remembers God's actions. 
He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He is remembered. Has God forgotten? No, it's not an expression of a lack of confidence in God's faithfulness. It's that now God has acted in a way that is manifestly distinct from the ways in which God has acted before. It is not as though God has forgotten. It is now Mary has been brought into, in a significant way, God's plan of redemption. God acts for his people. For from this point, everything has changed. Everything has changed. Because God has sent his son into the world, the significance of that being Christ, the final revelation of God, the eternal logos, the word made flesh, there need be no more Marys. For there is but one Messiah. And so Mary sings for God's grace shown to her. And not only mercy for Mary, but in verses 50 through 53, we see a reflection of God's mercy upon all men. And his mercy, when I say all men, I don't speak of universal salvation. I mean the scope of humanity that goes beyond Mary and Israel, the elect, even Gentiles, as we will come to see later. Verse 50, and his, the Lord, or God my Savior, she's still speaking of God my Savior, his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. This is mercy for the faithful. Now, when I say mercy to the faithful, I don't mean that we are faithful, and in light of our faithfulness, God in turn shows mercy to us. This wretched doctrine of foreknowledge or Arminianism. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is God has shown mercy in the sending of his son and this mercy is displayed to all the Old Testament saints who feared him, who believed him, who took him at his word and like Abraham believed the promise and that was what was counted to him as righteousness. And now Abraham... And the promise that he waited for, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Samuel, and Noah, and all the rest, front to back. God is showing his mercy. His mercy is upon those who wait for the Messiah, in whose hope, in whose trust is in the Messiah. He has shown strength with his arm, verse 51. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Christ is the full and final manifestation of the fulfillment of these things. So when we speak of the gospel as good news... Who is it good news for? All who believe and are therefore counted righteous. But it was not good news for Legion. It was not good news for the demons that Christ cast out. 
It is not good news for those who see the Messiah and reject the offer of peace and say, no, I want nothing to do with that. In fact, the gospel is itself, as a message, a dividing line. Will you fear the Lord? Will you be counted among those who hear and believe? Because what God will do through the Son made flesh is what he has been doing for generations. He is showing strength, we see in verse 51, unto what end? By the scattering of the proud who in their imaginations devise solutions to the problem of sin that do not include Jesus Christ. And he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. And of course we see Jesus later in the Sermon on the Mount echoing this theme. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. What is the inverse? That to those who are not poor in spirit, that to those who are stiff-necked under the preaching of the word of God, cursing be upon you. Mary understands the significance of this moment, not only in terms of history and redemptive history, but in terms of God establishing his kingdom for the righteous and against the unrighteous. Christmas is warfare. When Christ came to earth, he did so for the purpose of establishing a kingdom. Isaiah 9 is about the first incarnation. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. It's not about the second advent. It's about the first. Did I say the first incarnation? That was bad theology. <laughs> I meant to say the first advent. There is only one incarnation. And Christ is even now in his glorified state in the same body which he was raised in. Okay, I want to clear that up. Isaiah 9 is about the first in advent. And though it, it is a bit obscure to us, the significance of Christ taking upon himself flesh and blood is revealed in his humanity. It is revealed even now in his ascension to the throne. Christ is not waiting to be crowned king of heaven and earth. He is king of heaven and earth. And dear saints, this is happening still to this day because Christ is on the throne. The lowly are being lifted up, the hungry are being filled, and those who are haughty, who need, have no need for a doctor, they are being cast down. Now, to what degree did Mary understand these things? I don't know. This is, of course, not only Mary's song, it is a song given to her by the Holy Spirit. But as we know, spirit-wrought authorship does not abuse or neglect the insight and knowledge of the authors themselves. Now this is of course recorded by Luke. But Mary is the one who sang it to begin with. God will show mercy on all who fear him. And then it comes, or we come to my final point, a mercy for Israel. In verses 54 through 55 we, of course, 
need to regard Israel as those who are included as mercy for all in verses 50 through 53. But what I want us to see in verses 54 through 55 is mercy as the fulfillment of God's covenant promises for thousands of years. It is a covenant hymn, or it is a hymn of God's covenant faithfulness. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Now Mary is recounting her father Abraham and the promise that was made to him and how that promise made to Abram and his wife Sarai was what? You shall have a son. And that promise came in the midst of two great difficulties. They were both very old, and she was very barren. How would this happen? And they were made to wait for 25 years for conception. God opened the womb of Sarah and gave to Sarah a human Son, only human, not the Messiah, but born of the seed of the woman, part of the lineage of the covenant people of God. And then another son, Jacob, born again to a barren woman. Joseph was born to a woman who struggled to get pregnant. Hannah had a son, and she was, as far as we understand, barren, at least for a season. This is a recurring theme in the Old Testament. What is it that we can glean from that? That salvation on God's terms must come in miraculous ways. We cannot, through our own strength, establish righteousness. We cannot breed our way back into glory. We cannot earn our way back into the garden. There is nothing that you and I can do to merit the favor of God, we must, verse 54, be helped. So when we say, where does our strength come from? What is the answer? Our strength comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Strength comes from atop the hill. It comes from God who dwells in glory, and he must come down to us. This is who Christ is. He is the one who comes down from heaven, as it were, and is born, conceived and born, not merely in human likeness, but real human nature, with a reasonable soul and a body. And he took upon himself the misery of our humanity. Christ suffered all the things that you and I suffer. But without sin, he grew up like a little baby. It's easy to remember those things when you see little babies in your midst. (laughs) Parents, I'm sorry, your baby has probably already sinned in some fashion, whether unwittingly or not. Our children, even if they don't sin actually to some point in their life, are conceived because of mom and dad in sin, but not our Redeemer. Again, he has helped us. Why? Because he has remembered mercy. 
because he regards the lowly state of his maidservant, of those who are in need of help, even as, verse 55, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Luke 1.55 destroys dispensationalism. Right? Dispensationalism as a theological school says that God through time had to sort of rearrange the plan of redemption when man kept messing it up. Not only is that dishonoring to the Lord, but it is holy and utterly unbiblical. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever, of whom? Of the Messiah. Did God misspeak? No. This is a song of God's covenant faithfulness. This was the plan all along, and it will result in future glory. It is built upon past promises, but it will build into a glory that even she could not imagine. God continues to help Israel. God continues. Now, there is a part two to this song. Maybe there are many part twos, but the part two that I want to focus on in closing tonight is what we find in Revelation chapter 5. Now, Revelation chapter 5 takes place in terms of history after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Revelation chapter 5, Heaven is waiting for the newly minted king of heaven and earth, the newly coronated son of God, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world to take the throne so that he can rule and reign in accordance with the will of the Father. And there is a will having been set down by the Father for human history in the age of the church that can only be opened by the one who is the king of the church. Maybe you've seen scenes like this in movies where the president, having been inaugurated, goes into the White House and they bring him the book of all the communications that need to be handled. Or in England, the king or queen gets this red box and they open it up and it has all the orders of the day, all that must be done. And there is only one person who can open that box or open that book. In Revelation 5, it is a lamb. It is the lamb of God, Christ himself. And he takes the scroll and he begins to read from that scroll. And as he takes that scroll and is the fulfillment of all the promises of God, now they can be accomplished. And right now, dear saints, we are living in the age where Christ is reading from the scroll, as it were, God's plan for the world. And this is what they say, beginning in verse 8. Now when he, that is Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, 
the Son of God, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on earth. Now listen. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Who is counted among this number? Mary. Mary is in glory even now worshiping the son of her womb because he is the lamb of God that was slain before the foundations. That's why I say it's part two. Mary is speaking of the manifestation of God's covenant mercy. Did she know exactly what it meant? Probably not. We know better than she. I can tell you that for sure. But what I know is this, that the one who Mary bore who became our Messiah, is even now the one we worship, who will lead us to glory, who is our King, and loves us even to the very end. Let's pray.